there's all of these different audiences and none of them consume things in the same way. So you have to be able to turn the complexity into simplicity, but also understand that you are catering to a array of audiences and there is no playbook. There is no one size fits all. Welcome to the Commons Coffee Club podcast, where we bring you fascinating insights and conversations with communications leaders from across Fortune 500, FTSE 100, and leading global financial and professional services firms. I'm your host, Max Forsyth, founder and managing director of Comm Search and Selection, specialist in-house communications executive search and recruitment firm based in the UK, but covering the UK and US markets. Welcome to today's Comms Coffee Club podcast, where we speak to the wonderful Becca Chambers, Chief Communications Officer at tech firm ControlUp. Becca has over 15 years of corporate communications experience for some of the leading names in tech, including McAfee, Adaptive, Ivanti, and Aludo and Nullify. She speaks to us all the way from Sully, California, and shares her insights not just on her career, but what lands really well in tech from a communications perspective and some of her favorite campaigns and CEOs she's worked for. So, Becca Chambers, welcome to the Commerce Coffee Club podcast. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. No problem. And uh, yeah, it's nice and early in the morning where you are in, in Sully, California. And how's your week been? What have you been up to? Well, today it's rainy California, actually. It's been sunny the past few days, but uh, now we're raining. Yeah, actually, this is my last week before I start a new job. So I'm just taking it easy and trying to get some things done on my to-do list before I get back into the grind. It's been a nice little break. Yeah, nice. Lovely. And for the audience, it's probably helpful if I just give you a sort of quick intro. So sort of 15 years of analyst relations and senior communications experience for various large and mid-sized tech companies some have been listed some have been yeah kind of private equity owned so yeah really looking forward to this chat because uh yeah i'm sure you have lots of really great insights to share yeah super excited to be here and i will say i've uh, you know we'll get into this but i've basically sat in every role within comms and brand at some point in my career so i think i you know have a a unique perspective of all of the pieces of the comms team great smashing so why don't we start at the beginning and roll the clock back How did you get into communications? You know, I love this story because it's a little bit untraditional and it actually started years before I had my first comms job. I will tell the very short version. Um, But when I was in college, I went on semester at sea, which is an abroad program that takes students around the world on a ship, like a cruise ship type ship, stops at various countries and you learn along the way about the countries you're going to go to. And then you spend about a week in port at these various countries. So Two weeks into our journey, before we had ever reached any of our destinations, we were crossing the North Pacific Ocean from Vancouver, Canada to Seoul, South Korea, and we got trapped in the midst of not one, not two, but three hurricane systems, and they created an 80-foot rogue wave that crashed through our ship, and it disabled it. So it disabled all of the engines, and we were just sitting on this boat sitting ducks in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in January. So we're being rocked and rolled. Um, There's video on YouTube, like the boat was seriously just like listing all the way to the side. You would see nothing but sky and then ocean out of the little portholes. It was horrifying. But 
I will spare you the dramatic details. Um, the media caught wind of this, right? 800 students stuck in the middle of the ocean with nowhere to go. They jumped on it. And over the course of that next week or two weeks, I found myself on the Today Show and Inside Edition and NBC and ABC and all the national news and all the local news networks and even um, international publications picked it up. So when we arrived in Hawaii, which is where we were rerouted after our ship was disabled and um, we got help and blah, 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 I spent the day with an AP reporter who wrote my story and it got picked up on the wire and um, you know went out into the world. But I got to see the inner workings of the media machine and it was like thrilling for me. The, they used my video footage, they interviewed me and my friends, they told our stories and it all happened so fast. Like it was just like, boom, boom, boom. And for my, I have ADHD, my brain, it was just like amazing dopamine rush. And after that, I was like, well, I wanna do something like this when I grow up. So I was hooked and I um, doubled down on that experience and it, like forged my path into comms, which started in sports PR and quickly morphed into a tech career, which as I mentioned, um, was everything from, I started in executive communications uh, at McAfee, which was cybersecurity, uh, sent me into analyst relations, sent me into brand work, internal comms, I've stood up social media, uh, AR programs at multiple companies, and then rebranding, which, well, branding and rebranding, which is absolutely my favorite, most gratifying and exciting part of my career. Since 2015, I've been able to brand or rebrand four, I think four different companies, which is just my favorite thing to do um, because I get to use all the, cre it's like creativity meets strategy and like the most beautiful way that you get to kind of like birth this baby of yours, you know, and bring it to life. And it's, Thrilling. So anyway, uh, I say all of this because my career has been a lot of building and scaling up. And I've had my hands in everything from like the highest level of strategy. I reported to two CEOs as a comms person down to the like nittiest, grittiest, dirtiest details that are what make good comms stand out. So as I mentioned, starting a new job next week or um maybe it's this week when this publishes, as the chief communications officer. And I'm really excited to kind of build a new thing, get my hands dirty again. Nice. Great. Yeah. And can you reveal what kind of where you're starting? Do we get a little preview? Sure. You'll be the first person I tell this to, actually. Um, it's called Control Up. It's in the digital employee experience space, which is since COVID, especially more important than ever, right? Is you know, we've always focused on customer experience, but employee experience is very important. And for me as a neurodivergent person, and that's kind of my platform I talk about all the time, I really think the employee experience is as important as the customer experience. And so I'm really excited to kind of jump into this new market that I haven't been in before. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, I think on that, you know, kind of happy employees are one, they don't leave. <laughs> so that's good. They're also your best advocates, right? Yeah, like, correct. Who tells your brand better than your employees? Right? Who represents your brand or should represent your brand better than your employees? Yeah, yeah. And how did you get into tech comms specifically? What, how did your career go from sports PR into tech? That's a really good question, actually. Um, serendipity. I, like, I love to say serendipity. So um, I was living in L.A., entertainment world, I knew I did not want to do entertainment PR. So I went to grad school, finished grad school in the middle of the recession, um, and could not get a job for the life of me. Like it was 2009. And so I just started doing freelance consulting. And I taught myself graphic design because I figured, hey, I've got time and I'm interested in this thing. 
few months, I don't know, eight months after I graduated or six months after I graduated grad school, this random opportunity came up at McAfee in the Bay Area, which is where I'm from originally. So it seemed a little less scary for an executive communications manager. I had no idea what an executive communications manager was. I just thought the title sounded cool. And the job description was basically like, building PowerPoints for executives. I was like, I could do that. I just learned graphic design and I'm a great communicator. So I don't even remember how I got the interview. I somehow randomly got this interview and they gave me a homework assignment to build a PowerPoint presentation about WikiLeaks and teach us about WikiLeaks. So I went and researched and I, I did the PowerPoint presentation and they basically hired me on the spot. Like I talked to a few more people, but they were like, we love what you did here. And what was so awesome is that my first job in tech was working with CEOs. I was traveling with them. I was like going around the world, doing their communications, acting as their voice, right? Synthesizing what they had to say into some way that other people could understand it. So I went from knowing nothing about tech to being kind of in like the closed door conversations that I think most people aren't fortunate enough to be in. And I learned so much doing that. And it was just because of the graphic design plus comms marriage, it just worked out perfectly. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Like on WikiLeaks is a blast from the past as well. Yeah. I haven't heard too much about WikiLeaks last couple of years, but hey, maybe that's just COVID and my brain's completely scrambled. Maybe but... that tells you how old I am that I was making <laughs> PowerPoints about WikiLeaks when it was still a hot topic. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say as well. The, um, it doesn't matter what side of the Atlantic I speak to comms people and uh, they love that exposure to like, C-suite. You're across some very interesting stuff that really at any other grade in the company, in another function, you wouldn't be anywhere near it. Totally. And what's really interesting is I was there to support them with their comms, but I don't report directly to them. So it made for a different dynamic where sometimes I was a fly on the wall and other times I was like, fully advising them, right? Like they were asking me my opinions and it was so weird to be this 20 something person who felt like a total imposter, right? Sitting in the room with all of, all of these people I used to travel with, by the way, at McAfee are now all the CEOs of like the most famous cybersecurity companies. I'm not going to name drop, but like fascinating to see how all of their careers, they're like the luminaries of cybersecurity and like, I was going to Australia with them and I was hanging out in Mexico with them and, you know, learning the ropes of the industry from these guys. I also had to pretend to have a thick skin because I worked with these guys too, right? As a young woman in tech. So I think that's worth noting as part of a career journey. Uh, doesn't matter what your role is. No, that's very true. And I know that kind of the late, great John McAfee wasn't involved in the business by then, but he... Um, Certainly wasn't short of an opinion, was he? So, uh, yeah, that must have been interesting. He created a lot of PR headaches for us, right? Like we would just be plugging along, happy as a clam, doing great out in the world. And then all of a sudden, John McAfee comes and says something crazy. And suddenly the news wants to talk to people at McAfee about what they think. And we're like, we just have his name. We have nothing to do with him. It's like, you know, a stepchild whose dad is, you know, off in prison. We don't, I don't have anything to do with that person. I just have his name. But the comms people, he was a headache. Yeah, no, that must be really interesting. I guess it's probably a bit like if like a Musk or a Zuckerberg, you know, left Tesla or Meta, but then were spouting stuff on, on X. <laughs> Back in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, like there weren't that many cybersecurity companies that were well known. McAfee was synonymous with cybersecurity, right? So we just couldn't escape it. Like if he was running his mouth off, we were, we were stuck with it. That's, 
goes to the branding. And then Intel bought McAfee while I was there and rebranded it as Intel Security. And it was really, and then went back to McAfee because it turns out even with the crazy man spouting things off, McAfee was such a strong brand that it was more important than changing the brand name. Yeah, no, I remember back then it was, yeah, it was basically McAfee or, uh, so like, was it called like Norton, Norton Rose antivirus or something? Or? So Norton is part of Symantec. Ah, got it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember those being like the two options. The consumer options. Yeah. 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 So you started in exec comms and then do you move into analyst relations for a bit? So what was that like? So I moved into analyst relations because the AR director at the time, um, who we sat, our desks were right next to each other and we were friends. She went on maternity leave and I was like, I can do that. I'll do that. I already travel with the executives anyway. Right. I'm comfortable with them. Like, what's the difference going in, you know, sitting in analyst meetings turns out very different, but also very interesting. And I think, you know, if I had not, if I do, when I give advice to people earlier in their comms careers, I tell them, do whatever you can to get involved with analyst relations because there's nothing that makes you smarter at your job than sitting in analyst conversations and reading analyst research and hearing what they have to say about your market and the industry that you play in and you know what your customers are saying and what um, your competitors are saying and things like the conversations that they're having, you glean insights from them that nobody else gets. And then when you can start injecting that not only into your messaging and into your marketing, but also like up to your executives, right? Hey, I heard this thing. Our product is doing this. Is there a way that we can merge this messaging and, and announce X, Y, or Z? Suddenly I seem very smart. Like the comms lady, where are you coming up with these great ideas for tech? But really it's just because I'm taking what I'm learning here and applying it to what I'm doing over here. And I just think that that's something that not enough comms people are exposed to. And because I kind of accidentally fell into that, it was the most important and I think defining part of my career that kind of catapulted me into that next level of people saying, well, Becca should be running the comms program then, right? Like if Becca understands this and knows how to address real business challenges using brand and communications, maybe we should elevate this role. And um, so I do, I think advice to anybody, you know, who is incomes and what they're uh, working on, if there's a way, even if you just sit in on analyst conversations or ask, can I talk to analysts? Can I, you know, get a seat so that I have more access? All of that is invaluable. I guess for the listener, it'd be great. Just a bit of clarity. Was analyst or is analyst relations just dealing with the relations at, you know, sort of Gartner and Forrester? Or is it also dealing with the analysts within all of the VC and private equity houses that sort of look into the businesses too? So that's a really good question, actually. I think when people talk about analyst relations, specifically, they're talking about the industry analysts, the Gartners and Foresters and IDCs of the world. That is mostly who I worked with. Um, I have, however, also owned investor relations, which is the other piece of that, right? And they are totally different things. Investor relations, I find to be templative, right? Like it, there is a way to do it. There is a, a certain procedure and process for how that works. Analyst relations looks different in every single company. Obviously, there's some boxes you have to check, but strategic analyst relations, just like strategic PR or internal comms or brand, there is no playbook, right? Every place you go, it's a totally different thing. So to answer your question, uh, industry analyst relations, I find to be super interesting, educational. Uh, investor relations is a little bit more 
just box checking. It's something you have to do, right? And sometimes you need to do it to further a goal. You know, we're going to go public and we need to get in front of, uh, we have to go do the investor tour. That can be a little bit more fun, but I would say generally investor relations is my least favorite part of my job. No, I know. Yeah. And particularly if you're a listed business and uh, yeah, you have to do all of the updates and all of the, yeah, yeah. Kind of all the market updates and all of the yeah, kind of regulatory updates. It can be, uh, that could be a bit of a slog. And it is so boring, right? You write every quarter, you write the thing, and then 900 people have to review and approve it. So by the time it's done, it's just the, like, I can't even read this one more time. It is so painful for me to read. But, you know, you learn a lot about the business that way too. Yeah, great. So following your stint in analyst relations, you got your first kind of corporate communications director position. So yeah, were you sort of steering the ship at Centrify? So I started there running analyst relations and then it kind of grew. It was one, uh, there was a VP of comms and I reported to her and then she left at some point and I took over that. And, you know, we kind of stood up all the programs and as we stood them up, I would manage it. And then Centrify, actually, this was really interesting. It was acquired by a private equity company and it was split into two. They split out Centrify as part of the business, the larger part, and they split out another company, Nuco, as we called it, because it didn't have a name, to go be our, like, the SaaS identity and access management, whatever. It's like what Okta does, basically, if you know what Okta is. So I, I was tapped to go run comms, build the brand there. And that was, I think, it was so fun because it was being at a startup, but being at a startup that had, you know, $60 million in revenue already because we had this product. So we got to start everything from scratch, but we had money and, and resources and a customer base that we could communicate to. So instead of focusing, obviously there was a lot of change management and a customer communications that had to happen, but really it was like greenfield out there. What do we want to call this? What do we want it to look like? What do we want it to feel like? And how do you break through in cybersecurity, identity, and access management in a very oversaturated market. Um, and I think that was another thing, you know, work with the analysts, figure out how do you position this so that it's different. And it was acquired like a year and a half later, which was the goal. So fantastic. Yeah. And talking about the oversaturation of the market and uh, fighting for page space and for word count and uh, yeah, you name it. What works well in, in comms in tech? What cuts through? back to the AR piece, understanding your niche and knowing how you can form a perspective that isn't the same as everybody else's is everything, right? So I think part of why I was successful in security communications is because I grew up alongside the industry and I understand the minutia very well. So when somebody says, hey, why don't we go and talk about this? I can say, because every other vendor is talking about this, why don't we focus on this piece of it? Because this is what we do uniquely that's different than everybody else. And I think there's a way that we can own this conversation or this is the thing that we own. How do we make that a broader conversation that people aren't having yet? And really like narrowing in on that. Otherwise you're just shouting over other people and whoever's the loudest might be the one who gets, you know, media coverage, but you don't need to shout if your stories and your ideas are great, right? So I think this goes back into wherever you can find insight that isn't just the same insight everybody else has, whether that's with through analyst conversations or whether it's um, having deep in-depth conversations with your leadership or your product people who can help you find those nuggets of wisdom because 
you know, this actually goes well into another important key skill set for great comms people is turning complexity into simplicity or being able to turn a message into a message that exists and works for many different audiences, not just one. Um, so I think people get laser focused on the customer, which is obviously important. And that is what marketing is there to do. Comms is there to focus on all of the stakeholders, right? And if you're selling enterprise tech, that means employees, like we chatted before, obviously your customers, it means prospective customers, analysts, media, investors, government bodies, sometimes um, prospective employees, you know, there's all of these different audiences, and none of them consume things in the same way. So you have to be able to take whatever complex idea that you're company is selling and figure out how to make that matter to all of these different groups in a way in the channels that they like in the way that they like to consume it. So I think, you know, that was a long winded way of, again, saying turn the complexity into simplicity, but also understand that you are catering to a array of audiences and there is no playbook, there is no one size fits all. So, um, so yeah, I think that the ability to weave stories obviously is key. Um, and then actually I, I have two, I have two more things that I think make comms people um, amazing. Flexibility and agility, which it's not just, obviously we have to be flexible in our jobs because comms people are on 24 hours because who knows when you know, a crisis happens. But the tech landscape is constantly changing. The media landscape is constantly changing as we've seen over the past couple of weeks with all of these layoffs. The ability to break through in channels is always changing. So your approach always has to change. So you have to be flexible and you have to be okay with, okay, well, that I that thing that worked six months ago isn't working anymore. So let's look at the data and let's change our approach. And I think oftentimes too many people get stuck in the, well, this is the way that we've done comms, so we need to keep doing it this way. And I am here to challenge that and say, you absolutely do not. Like you can throw out what you were doing for the last six months and do something completely different because that may be what you need right now to reach your goals. And then, you know, kind of along those lines, comms people, what do I look for in people that I hire to my team is like a healthy dose of curiosity and bravery, going to the willingness to try new things, and then enough willingness to put yourself out there and advise, right? Like put your opinions forward even when it's uncomfortable. And even if you're, you know, a manager and you're in a room with the CEO, and this goes back to my exec comms experience, like sometimes you do know better. Like sometimes the audience that you're speaking to, you might be 26 years old talking to a 55 year old CEO, but you may be right. And she might not know what you know. So kind of the willingness to engage and put yourself in that advisory role when you need to. Really good point. And um, yeah, really... And a really good one as well. I think for anyone who's listening to this, who is at maybe that manager level and they're in their twenties or their thirties and um, yeah, they want to kick on. Don't be afraid of sharing your opinion and finding your voice. And there is a way to do that. Of course, <laughs> you know, you have to go about it in a smart way, but you know, it's like doing an internal PR job and an internal media relations job. You know, yeah, you've got to build those relationships. I just want to circle back on um, kind of the US piece and yeah, finding that nugget of something that, separates your brand or your product from everybody else have you got a couple of sort of good examples of kind of where you've done that and then what you've done from a communications point of view to drive that home 
Yeah, I mean, well, I have a million examples I can give you, but I do have kind of like a, I have a good campaign that paints a picture of this. So back in 2019, way back in 2019, so pre-pandemic is why I say that that's what's important. Before QR codes were all the rage, but they were definitely out there and around. We just weren't all using them all of the time. Um, I worked for a company that did, we call it now unified endpoint management, essentially security for your mobile phone, right? I was hired to reposition the company as you know an IT tool that was there to manage employees' phones to a true cybersecurity company. So how do we reposition this kind of stodgy mobile device management company into a sexy cybersecurity company? especially since people weren't thinking about mobile security as much back in those days as they are now, except for government entities. Well, one of the big things that the company did was protect against malicious URLs. So if an employee clicked on a bad URL on their phone, the software would block it so they couldn't let the bad actors gain access to other data, blah, 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 simple enough. We needed to make people understand why that mattered. And nobody really cared, again, except for government agencies. So one day I was at a restaurant and I noticed that they had a QR code for their drink menu. And I thought, huh, well, that's kind of risky because a QR code is just a link. And if people are out there willy nilly scanning these, they might, you could put a bad QR code up. And so an idea was born. And in this case, I, I brought this to my comms team. We were really scrappy and small and we didn't have a huge budget. And I'm like, how do we get people to give a shit about QR codes? And so we got cookies, real life sugar cookies, and we've, frosted QR codes onto the top of them and created a landing page that the QR code linked to. And then we sent the cookies to media and analysts to see what would happen. And each one was unique so we could tell who was scanning. Voila, they scanned the code. And what was cool is they weren't just scanning it once, the same person would scan it like five, six, seven, eight times, which meant that they were showing it to other people, right? They're showing it to their family or their friends saying, hey, check out this cool campaign. So when they scanned the code, it took them to a landing page that said something along the lines of, uh-oh, your mobile defensive may have crumbled. And then it had more info about the risks of malicious URLs and the potential for bad QR codes. And then the ch social chatter started, right? Because it was like, hey, I got these cookies in the mail. Look at how creative this is. Then news articles, because we, you know, we had the attention of the uh, media. So then we pitched them on it about how QR codes may be risky and then broadcast TV segments showcasing our product. And then the pandemic hit and who was already the QR code experts out there? That was us. So it brought a fresh new wave of coverage. In the end, I was writing bylines about, you know, QR codes and marketing. We expanded the cookies to customers for an upsell campaign that was massively successful. And it was all because we saw this trend emerging and figured out an interesting way to bring it to life other than QR codes are dangerous, right? And I like this example because it had so much media around it. It wasn't just earned media. We had videos uh, on social showing, like doing a behind the scenes about the campaign itself. We had blogs, we had bylines, we had our execs out there talking about it. We had analysts repping our cookies. And like I said, real sales associated with the campaign. Um, so in the end, you know, people always undermine comms as though you don't drive revenue, but hey, guess what? Sometimes we do. It still is one of my favorites. I love to talk about this. It, you know, it's it's online somewhere, um, the videos and the links to it, but um, the cookie campaign, uh, that company was acquired and the company that acquired it still uses the cookies with their customers. So 
campaign carries on five years later no yeah that's great really good and um and also yeah kind of great timing because it has just made me realize that it's probably the same in the us but here in the uk you can't go to a restaurant or pub now and not have a qr code on the table that's right i mean and it was like snap all of a sudden they were everywhere right and i was just like it was making me well this is great for our story but now it's like everyone is making me uh stressed for them because everyone's out there willy-nilly scanning qr codes and then plenty of stories emerged over the past few years about malicious qr codes and people who were taking advantage using qr codes so we were really ahead of the curve on that yeah no and actually there's a really good example um here from the uk we had a prime minister here for about six weeks a lady called liz trust and poor old liz uh, she had her government phone hacked and uh it was hacked because someone sent her a malicious link via whatsapp and uh, yeah she clicked on it amazing what's interesting about qr codes now i'm like putting my security hat on i swear i'll shut up after this is that you know, we are taught in security training, you hover over the link, right? And if it looks bad, blah, blah, you can't hover over a QR code, right? Like a QR code is you scan it or not. And it's just so interesting that they came onto the scene in such a big way without anybody considering the security consequences of that. Nice. Yeah. And do you have another sort of good example? Because that was great, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, I would be remiss if I did not mention the company that I most recently worked for is now called Aludo. It was formerly known as Corel, which many people might know as like the design company from pre-Adobe days. I was hired by the CEO herself, actually, because it's a portfolio company of a ton of a ton of products, B2C and B2B products. And there was no connective tissue between them. The employees didn't even have like the same at email address. Like it was just like this collection of companies that didn't really like fit together. So they wanted to hire somebody to come in and build connective tissue, put build a new brand that sat on top of all of these companies to basically create a new company that uh, had new values and a new uh, brand architecture around it. I was responsible to articulate this company, well, articulate the values of the new ELT that was there. It was a new CEO, um, this very dynamic and articulate female CEO who the media loved, by the way. How do we take her values and make her and the brand like synonymous with each other? And it was so fun. Like it was the most, I would say one of the most fun projects that I've ever gone to work on. It was like a full year of, deep brand work, you know, lots of research. But how do you make a company that has all of these disparate products? On one side, we have virtualization and cybersecurity products. On the other side, we have Adobe-like creative tools when, you know, Canva's on the scene now. How do you create connective tissue between these and not just for external audiences, internal too? How do you make employees feel like you they are part of this company where they do nothing like the people who are working on the product over there. So this is a very long-winded way for me to say that I needed to create this brand and actually articulate it in a way that people would understand. And so what we did is we leaned into how, how our products help enable people's lives, how it helps all that you do in your life, whether that's in work, whether that's at home. And we wanted to talk about how the future of work was being redefined and how innovative companies and companies with innovative cultures 
were going to be what thrived in the future of work. And then how our products fit into that was just we sold things that helped enable the flexibility, right? So the product piece of it was so much less important than the brand itself and connecting the brand to the CEO and have her kind of represent what this brand was. So in my first year, selling basically no product, right? Selling a brand that had never existed. Our CEO was on Bloomberg TV, in Fortune, Washington Post, Business Insider, Forbes, Fast Company, Diginomica, you name it. And it wasn't because of, again, sexy innovation or product about the industry. We had an innovation story to tell about the world and how the world was changing. And we hit on something that resonated with folks. And it resonated with employees, right? So as part of that, I even got to build my own executive platform that was aligned to the brand and culture. Like I said, I'm neurodivergent. And so my team conducted research about how remote work and flexibility in the workplace impacts neurodivergent people and disabled people, actually, which turned out to be very timely. And the research now, it's almost a year old, is still getting picked up in media. That has been featured in the New York Post and Wall Street Journal and others which is surprising and amazing. But I bring that one up because it's not just the CEO who is bringing the brand to life too, right? I'm bringing it to life. The HR leader was bringing it to life each in our own way. But what I love about this campaign is it had such a profound impact on the whole organization, right? It wasn't just externally that we were saying we were doing all of these things. The comms and brand team like led a transformation that made everybody feel part of one company. That made all of these people who never felt like they worked together kind of join together towards a shared set of values and a shared goal and a shared mission. And it was one of those things that I think comms often gets undervalued in organizations, but the brand and comms work that we did saw this gigantic increase in um, belonging. It we a huge increase in the number of job applications because we were also projecting it externally. And then our employees were telling other people, hey, they offer all this flexibility and they they lean into neurodiversity. I had people sending me messages like left and right. I started an ERG around neurodiversity saying how just being somewhere that embraced these values was everything. And I just, you know, it goes, it goes to show that comms isn't just about getting your message out to your external stakeholders. It's not clearly about selling a product. It's about making people care about your company. And ultimately, I was really, really, really proud of the work we did on this because we made something that didn't exist at all into a thing that people cared about. Yeah, that's great from a cultural perspective. And um, and also, yeah, kind of great for finance and HR as well, uh, saving on recruitment costs, having to, having to use recruitment agencies. That's right. And, you know, it makes... Your employees feel good when they see the job applications. Like it's something as simple as like we rewrote the way that our job applications looked and we then implemented that. So everybody had a different way to present job applications to people. And just that little change, huge impact on the brand. And I think people, again, people underestimate how powerful brand marketing is and how it's not just shapes and colors, right? Yeah, kind of really good example. Yeah, kind of thanks for sharing that. Having what you've said, this is probably going to be a difficult question for you to answer, but who's been your favorite CEO to work for in terms of their communications and why? Yeah, um, also a good question. And, you know, I will say that my last CEO, the one that I referred to in my last story, probably 
my favorite experience as far as working with the CEO herself and really developing her platform and what she was about. Part of it was just, she was very willing, very easy to work with, right? And very um, eager to put herself out there. She didn't feel like she needed to shield who she was. She was very authentic. And I had previously spent years, most all of my career working with male tech CEOs and getting coverage for them was like pulling teeth because they didn't want to participate in the thought leadership development phase as much as necessary, right? And they weren't as available for the media ops as my last CEO was. And they weren't interested in growing the social profile online. And I think people really underestimate now how important that is. And so this CEO was different. She wanted to put herself out there. She wanted her personal brand and the company's brand to be intertwined. So she wanted to humanize herself for customers and employees and et cetera. And I think you know, opened herself up to being authentic and vulnerable. And everybody resonated with that, right? Like that. And and for me as a comms person, it made, made it so I didn't feel like I was just crafting messages for her that she was then spewing. Like it was authentic to who she was. I was just helping her to amplify what she was already saying and target it in the right places and articulate it maybe slightly uh, cleaner than it would otherwise. But I think just my biggest takeaway with her is realizing you don't, you shouldn't be talking about your product all the time, right? Like that is, that comes later, like build a brand, build a brand around your people, right? And I think my biggest goal or one of my biggest goals in the future with my future CEOs and executives is how do we not only build the brand brand, but build your brand to be as powerful because it pulls different levers and it can, you know, get different results. So. And what was the CEO's name? Her name is Krista Quarles. You can Google her and there is, it's Q-U-A-R-L-E-S. And there is lots of coverage out there. Part of the way she recruited me actually was that she had sent me some of the coverage uh, that she had gotten in the past. And one of them is where she calls bullshit on somebody. And I am quite sweary as a person. And this idea of being able to work with this woman who was kind of unfiltered and interesting and wanting to put herself out there. Yeah. For me, that was very inspiring. Yeah, no, I really like it. I, um, I'll probably get vilified by this, but a lot of people on LinkedIn, but I really like Musk. I just think he just says what's on his mind. He's great. I, well, there's a line. I would not want to be Musk's PR person. I realize he does not have PR people, but, um, you know, there's a line between being authentic and being offensive. And I personally very sensitive to it. That said, I also don't think that if I worked for somebody like Musk, I don't think I would try to be like, you need to rein in. I think I would just tap out, right? Like that would be my, like, but some people are actually built to be the counterpoint to somebody like him, right? Whereas I'm more of the I want to be a partner to somebody and not always be challenging them. Yeah, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, because he doesn't have a PR person, but it'd be interesting if he did. <laughs> I'm guessing he would ignore them. Probably. Although I can imagine there probably is one person out there who could get through to him. I'm sure. I'm sure there is. Yeah, but that'd be rare. So, yeah, and another thing I just wanted to touch on as well, because I think yeah, kind of what's really interesting about you and, you know, whilst you've been a, you know, a senior comms person and in-house for brands on the side, you've also done you've also done some advisory work. So be really interested to find out a bit about 
a bit about that and how that came about and how you manage that alongside, uh, yeah, working for brands yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's actually something I love to do. And I sort of fell into it. I want to say it was like 2018. A mutual acquaintance in the cybersecurity space introduced me to a CEO of a startup. And over the course of a couple of months, we would just connect because I knew a lot of people that, you know, he should know. He was, I thought his tech was interesting and I just wanted to like know more about it. At the time I was talking to analysts like five times a day. So I just thought it would make me sound smarter too, to know about this other thing. And we started sharing wisdom and soon he realized that I could bring value. That wasn't like the nine to five comms lady job. They were very early and they didn't need that, but they did want me to make introductions. They did want me to have conversations with analysts. They did want me to bring in people with other, you know, product type backgrounds to help uh, and build out their advisory. So we set up this advisory situation. Uh, I became a very close mentor and advisor to the CEO and COO. Like I said, help them recruit the right folks and message their products, help them like find their market fit and make the intros to analysts and journalists who could help, you know, get the stories going about them. And then of course I jumped in with my comms eyes when necessary and I would edit press releases if I needed to, but it was very strategic, right? And I probably in the early days spent a couple hours a week working on it. And then as time went on and they became more mature and had what they needed in place, less and less and less. And through that advisory, I met, I met other folks and they then would, you know, invite me to come advise at their company or they needed help with this specific pro project or problem. So they might bring me in for that. So it's very strategy heavy, right? And what's different about being in-house is that in-house, my day job is highly strategic, but I'm also in the weeds, right? Making sure every message is right and hitting all the right audiences. I don't do that with advisory. Um, you know, they, I trust that they are still they have the people that are writing and the people that are polishing and I'm just there, you know, as needed to help. Yeah, it's been fun. And good that your full-time employees sort of let you do that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it brings, again, like the more conversations I'm in out there in the industry, the more knowledge I have and the better I can do my job. And I actually think that like, that's a really good point because I don't think I would want to work somewhere where somebody didn't embrace what I brought to the table. And that includes my neurodiversity, right? And my platform for wanting to talk about that. Like if I had an employer who was like, hey, we're a little bit more buttoned up and we don't talk about that stuff externally, I would be like, I don't think this is the place for me. And I kind of feel um, similarly about whatever my advice, like, I think what I do in my free extra time, all it does is make me more interesting and dynamic and brings more to the table in my nine to five job. What's your opinion on... Uh during COVID and then obviously off the back of it, nearly every business either moved to remote or hybrid as the economy's tightened, maybe a bit of investor pressure. There's a lot of companies across sectors, but a lot of tech companies, Zoom are just a hilarious example, who have ordered employees back into the office. <laughs> it is hilarious. What's your opinion on that? And um, because I'm guessing the study on the neurodivergency and flexible working said that, yeah, flexibility is really important. I have strong opinions about this because yes, flexibility is important. And I actually think, I, I don't know who returning to the office benefits other than people who like to externalize things, right? Which is not everybody. I'm an introvert. Um, I like to socialize in bursts and whatever. 
my ideal situation would be to work somewhere that has an office that's available to me. So if I need to go in, if there's stuff that needs to happen together, we can do that, but it's not mandated. And the reason why is because I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're neurodivergent or neurotypical or whatever. Everybody works in a different way than the person next to them. Why do we expect that everybody works in the same way? I just, I cannot get my head around that. Even with tools, right? You're a Mac person or you're a PC person. If I go to a company and they're like, you have to use a PC, that's a non-starter for me because it will take me a year to learn to get up to par with what I was doing on my Mac. So why would I spend all of my effort learning how to use a computer when I already know how to use a computer and like move the barrier, remove it and let people focus on their work. And I think this is what it comes down to with flexibility. You know, I'm sitting here, I have a weighted blanket on my lap right now. If we were in person, I couldn't have a weighted blanket on my lap. It makes me more comfortable. Temperature in my room is comfortable. The volume is comfortable. I don't have people walking by distracting me. I mean, somebody walked by a few minutes ago and I was looking out the window. It's, you know, we all have our different ways of doing things. Some people want to be in the office. Great. Make that an option for people who want to be in the office. But there isn't research that shows that people being physically together is more productive. And I actually think that there's plenty of research that shows, in fact, the opposite, because people are getting back two hours of their day they're not spending in the car. For me, it's not just two hours in the car. It's also the hour to get ready to like go out in public and, you know, do my hair and my makeup and the things that I don't necessarily have to do if I'm meeting somebody over a screen or if I'm not having video calls that day. I just think the kind of rigid rules of what works look like just don't apply anymore. And the genie's out of the bottle, can't put it back in. And Gen Z who's coming up, they want none of that. And so we may be in this weird transition for the next few years where people are like, you have to come back to the office. I don't think it's going to last. I don't think that, I think that, I think we are entering a new paradigm and I don't know what it looks like yet. I don't think that it's all remote all the time, but I do think that there will be a much bigger emphasis on flexibility, not just in where you work, but like, again, tools and, oh, you want to use Canva instead of Photoshop? Go ahead, right? Oh, uh, you prefer to use Keynote over PowerPoint? Go ahead, right? Like, I don't see why those things have to be mandated, especially if they just create an obstacle to somebody's job. So, yeah. No, no, it's interesting. And I think that flexibility is probably certainly the case for for smaller and medium-sized businesses. But yeah, the amount of large corporates I know where, yeah, you know, incredibly rigid policies, not just on work, but as you say, on the tech you use, on your work phone, the applications you're allowed to use. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, you've got so many people leaving and joining your company every year. And, you know, lots of people aren't going to be proficient in the tools that you use. And when they can use something else and just slot in, it's, uh, yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. And I will say one more thing that I think is especially important for neurodivergent people, which is that we spend a significant amount of energy masking all the time, right? Masking means trying to hide the things that make us seem different than neurotypical people so that we just seem, quote, normal, right? And that we fit in with everybody else. For me, I bounce a lot. I'm bouncy. I spin in my chair. I'm chatty when I get going. I'm like very talkative. All of these things that I spend a significant amount of effort hiding when I'm in large 
large groups, right? Because I don't, I just want to fit in. I just want, I don't, I don't want to stand out. I want to be like everybody else. Sometimes if I'm spending X amount of effort doing that, that's effort. I'm not spending on my job or solving the problem or strategizing or doing whatever I'm being paid to do. And so it feels like if we can just remove that, just take away the things that don't need to be there to free up some of that energy to let all of our people use their brains on the things we want them to use their brains for, we would just, we would get so much more done. And it comes down to interview process and being in all of the things. Yeah, the impact on uh, productivity would, would be great. And um, yeah, it's so true. Yeah, kind of one size definitely doesn't fit all. And um, fingers crossed, it'd be nice to, yeah, kind of see some workplaces embrace it. And I'm assuming Control Up with their employee engagement tech is designed to help that. So it's interesting. Um, I'm just digging into the tech now, so I only have a slight understanding. But what I really, really, really love and appreciate is that the CEO and the CMO both have said before I even started the job, we love what you're doing with neurodiversity and we want to like whatever platform you need to keep that conversation going, like we are all for it. So like having the support of a company I'm going to work at to just continue to be me and embrace it is, I mean, that's everything, right? And it also helps them because they are embracing the employee experience and that's what they're selling is tools to make the employee experience better. So why not also embrace a culture that makes the employee experience better too? No, yeah, they've got to live and breathe it, right? Otherwise, uh, yeah, they wouldn't last very long. <laughs> that's right. And I mean, this is why brand is so important because you can have your brand can be saying one thing and your CEO could be saying something completely different. And when those two things don't vibe, your brand is toast. You're a liar. People don't trust you anymore. We just saw this with the kite baby fiasco. And I think that's a perfect example of your brand represents something that you don't represent. And that's bullshit. And people are going to call bullshit on you. And so, you know, that's our job. That's why you need the comms people there. Keep you sane. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great having you on, Becca. Like, I've really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, some really, some really, really, really good points and some great insights. So thank you. Is there anything you'd like to plug? I don't have anything to plug other than if you're more interested in more of my perspectives on neurodiversity, I post um, all of my podcasts and articles that I've written about this on my website, which is www.beccahasadhd.com. And, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can reach out to me on the website there if you want to chat about comms or neurodiversity or whatever. Nice. Yeah, that sounds great. And I will check out the website myself because um, I've only checked out your LinkedIn. So yeah, I need to have a look at your website. <laughs> Fabulous. And thank you for having me on. This has been great. Yeah, no worries. Pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to today's Comms Coffee Club podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. If you like what you heard or saw, please do like and subscribe and follow on whatever your favorite medium is to listen or watch this. And if you'd like more information on us, you can find our website at www.comssearch.com. That's comms, search.com. Or find us on LinkedIn if you type in comms search and selection into the search bar. Or alternatively, you can get in contact with me directly on LinkedIn if you search for Max Forsyth. We look forward to uh, you joining us on future comms episodes and until then, take care.